You're listening to the A Connector Podcast with host Mark Foreman. Let's get connecting. Yeah. Welcome an old internet, Twitter, Skype friend of mine, Mr. Dan Mosqueda. Dan, welcome. Hey, Mark. It's uh, nice to uh, chat with you again. It's been quite a while. I mean, we kind of communicate here and there, but um, uh, it's really uh, nice to hear your voice. Right. And uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here uh, with you on your podcast. This right. is exciting. Yeah, and to borrow, to, borrow, uh, to borrow a phrase from the Grateful Dead, what a long, strange trip it's been, huh? <laughs> it has yeah. since, what, yeah. 2007, I guess, right? Something like that, yeah. I mean, we, we were kind of like in the early days of Twitter when it was just kind of people hanging out and being sociable and uh, not, not hating on each other and getting all politicized and, and angry. Well, yeah, and there was like, ooh, 100,000 people you know, right. so you could watch the actual something that people who've joined it only recently could never fathom, but you could just watch the Twitter stream. Right. And it, oh, that person's interesting. And that's how, uh, you know, we made um, uh, friends between the two of us and sure. many, many others. In fact, uh, you know, it's how I met my wife. Yes, I, re- I remember because actually I was even thinking about this when I was. Uh, looking for you on Skype, I, I, I remember one time I was looking for you on Skype, and we chatted briefly and said, hey, Mark, I got to go because there's this girl I want to talk to you on Skype here, so I need to get off with you and, and get her call. And I, I, I know that that is Annie, your wife, correct? That is correct. Yeah, yeah, and I'm thinking, wow, I guess that call works, you know. So indirectly, I, I think I should get some tiny bit of credit, but sure. that's okay. We can talk about that later. It's all yours, brother. Okay, okay. <laughs> So now, how many years? Now you, you and Ann, uh, you and Annie have been married for how long now? Uh, it will be ten years wow. uh, on Wednesday. Man, ten years went by like a blink. I know. Wow. Uh, yep. Okay. So okay, uh, let, let's get a little bit of background. I mean, I'm a little bit clear on your background, but let's let's kind of uh, let the listeners figure out a little bit more about who Dan is and we're. Uh, uh, where he came from and what he's doing. So originally you're from Detroit, is that right? Well, actually, I'm from uh, the west side of Michigan in the Grand Rapids area. Okay. Though I have lived okay. in uh, the eastern east half of the state as well. Okay, so but, so you're uh, born in Michigan and grew up there. I yep, born in Michigan, and uh, I was raised in a, a town north of Grand Rapids called Rockford. Uh, Rockford uh, is the home to Wolverine Worldwide and oh, okay. Hush Puppy Shoe Company. Sure, yeah, a lot yep. of brands with Wolverine. Yep, I think. Yep, that. So their headquarters is still there. Okay. Uh, they, I don't. Um, they had a tannery in downtown, and boy, you knew when they were hard at work because it wasn't a great smell. But um, that's gone. Uh, I don't know if they're manufacturing anything in Rockford at all right uh anymore but the headquarters is definitely sure yeah i mean a lot of their stuff of course is outsourced uh to here in asia uh for those of you that don't know i am based here in taiwan which is in asia um and actually i have quite a few friends that work for them i've had some contact with them just out of curiosity in that part of the state do, do you actually have wolverines 
<laughs> I don't think there are wolverines anywhere in the state, and if there are, I'm going to guess they'd be in the Upper Peninsula. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure, you know, how uh, the state and then, of course, uh, my uh, alma mater got attached uh, to the Wolverine. There, right? There's got to be some real, you know, real world, real life connection somewhere along the line. I mean, it's just odd to me that you'd have a major corporation and and the state school both using that name if there wasn't some real tangible connection. Do, do you know much about the animal Wolverine? Well, I know they're uh, fierce and yeah. ferocious. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, they're, uh, I want to say that they're part of the bear Family. I think I think like a wombat. I mean, kind of like you know, not you know, some kind of marsupial. But you you nailed it. And I think you know, and particularly ferocious when cornered. So oh yeah, definitely. Which um, is a great name for like a football team. Like you know, you mess with us, you're gonna you know, you're gonna get the bear, <laughs> right? You're gonna get the Wolverine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I wish I could say that uh, for sure. Um, about uh, the University of Michigan. It's um, not always uh, the case, but, um, you know, a quick little look here on uh, Wikipedia tells me that the Wolverine is in the remote reaches of the northern boreal forests. Um, So they're talking northern Canada, um, Alaska, and the Nordic countries, and uh, Siberia, which I knew that they were definitely in uh, Siberia. So uh, interesting. yeah. Why we uh, gained that uh, that uh, that? For example, it says here the U.S. state of Michigan is traditionally known as the Wolverine State, and the University of Michigan takes the animal as its mascot. Right. Right. Okay. Because I think I remember. I think I even. I don't know if it was like a Hush Puppies slogan or if it was like Wolverine wor- Worldwide slogan that was something like we use everything but the, except for the squeal. Do you remember that? I, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to say I, I, I don't. Okay. Well, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to Wolverine shame you today, Dan. So we'll conclude here now and thank you for, no, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but I grew up in Michigan and, uh, I, uh, we lived on the, the West side of the state. Um, it's a beautiful place. The, uh, winters are pretty, can be harsh they're not um i mean i wouldn't like stack it up there with say buffalo or uh, northern minnesota or alaska for sure right uh but um it's really pretty uh particularly uh in the summer um a lot of my family in fact still lives there and my youngest son actually uh, goes to a boarding school in northern Michigan right. on Lake Michigan, and it's uh, it's I love where his school is. It's yeah, so it's a pretty part of the country. Yeah, it really is. So, is it far but, from Battle Creek? I'm sorry. Is it far from Battle Creek? Uh, where I'm from? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Grand uh, Grand Rapids and Battle Creek's probably ninety miles okay. away. Maybe that's not so far, so, especially from where I'm sure. sitting. Yeah, exactly. From clear around, around the world. Um, uh, I mean, you know, to go to the uh, up where my son goes to school, it's up by Traverse City. It's probably I've heard of that place. Yeah, three or four hours from Grand Rapids, going north. Um, oh, so going up into the Upper Penin- Peninsula, then? 
Uh, he's still it's still in the lower peninsula, so it's uh, below the bridge, uh, which is why the Youpers, uh, the people in the upper peninsula, call us the trolls because we live beneath <laughs> the bridge. Um, <laughs> I see. Yeah. <laughs> so there is another application for troll. It's not just on the internet, huh? Uh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. In fact, that's uh, probably the first place I heard the word. I think so. Troll. As actually, sure. as a kid, when I when I was a kid, I remember that you know those little troll dolls, like with like a big wart on the chin and like, like long green hair. Uh, mm-hmm. th- those are pretty popular in, in my childhood, and I don't know why the you know why the fad about them existed then, but it was just a a pop culture thing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we grew up there, and my uh, I ended up uh, graduating from high school, and then I went to. We actually then moved to the other side of the state. So <clears throat> my dad took a job in Detroit, and right. uh, we lived north of Detroit about, I'd say, 40 minutes. He was in the automobile so- business, right? No, no. My oh, no. dad, he was not. My okay. dad uh, worked for the Teamsters Union. Ah, okay. Uh, I knew there was, yeah. in my mind, I knew there was some connection with the auto industry. So... Or is that still wrong? No, no. Well, the connection is... Is the union connection? Yeah. During those years, uh, while I was going to uh, a community college and the University of Michigan in the summers, um, I was a teamster driving truck, and uh, all the work that I did uh, focused solely around uh, the summertime retooling of the automotive plants. So I've driven... Uh, a steak truck inside of probably every major um, manufacturing facility uh, in that part of Michigan. Okay. Yep. So, so all right, right now, you know, let's jump around in time a little bit. We'll get back to the current timeline, but I just want to update a little bit. You're involved in a um, live, live and let die cast. Live and let die cast. That's, uh, that's the podcast that I have. And, um, I'm ashamed to say we haven't recorded probably since uh, December. I I don't know why. I mean, you'd think during the COVID lockdown we would have gotten together. Um, it's a lot, you know, you know how it is. It's sure. a lot of work put sure. these together. Um, but it's fun. We uh, talk about uh, die-cast model cars, um, and it really kind of started uh, – when a few friends of mine and I, we would be uh, playing on Xbox Live, um, typically, you know, car racing games mm-hmm. and things too. And these two of them would just, it's all they talked about, blah, 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 diecast, blah, 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 diecast, which right. I like diecast cars. I just didn't know anything about. Have you been collecting for a long time? Who, me? No. I started collecting as a part of this whole uh, project. I had mm-hmm. purchased some way back in the day for my son, my oldest son. And uh, so I said to these guys, I said, you know, instead of listening you, to you talk about this while we're trying to play games, why don't we just do a podcast? And they were like, huh. And, That's uh, an idea. Somebody, and, yeah. And it, it uh, you know, it did fine. I, I, you know, I don't know how many listeners maybe we might have a thousand or so overall. I mean, it's a pretty niche. Uh, arcane subject but, but that's actually good because the people you know that are interested in that are pretty passionate about it yeah yeah for sure and yeah the interesting part was we 
while we had, you know, the majority of our listeners were uh, here in the U.S., they were not only in the U.S. And uh, in fact, you know, before we started recording, I was telling you that uh, a friend of mine was putting together a pre-recorded episode uh, that I, I actually physically went to California for, for work, and then I uh, stayed over a weekend, and I went to a, a car show called Radwood, which uh, features um, what they call rad-era cars from the 80s and 90s. And I can, you give it, can you give me an example of, of what a rad-era car would be, like a model or sure. two? Mm-hmm. Sure, like a, let's say, for instance, uh, there was, uh, the, uh, the Knight Rider car was there. Oh, so, okay. okay, sure. Um, but then there were like a lot of, um, you know, 80s and 90s BMWs and Porsches. And, uh, but the, the car that won the day was a, ooh, I don't remember exactly the year, but it was a, a Pontiac Bonneville SSE that this guy had owned since new drives it every day still, but it was in perfect condition. And I mean, I think everybody was just kind of blown away and and you've got to know there were a couple of nearly priceless cars from that time because it's not just like, you know, roll up in your, uh, you know, 1989 BMW. I mean, there, there was a, a, a very rare, like, one of three cars or so, mm-hmm. uh, Porsche, um, Koenig C62. I could be getting that wrong. And it was essentially, they took a race car and made it legal for the road. And I don't mean it in the way that people overuse that. This was no kidding. A legitimate a race, race car. car, right? Yeah. And the guy who, who, who brought it there, he didn't own it. Um, is a, a big time, um, automo- automotive podcaster by the name of Matt Farah. His podcast is The Smoking Tiger. And Matt also uh, was on a TV show on, oh, a couple of them actually. Um, he was on The Man Show with Adam Carolla and Jimmy Kimmel. And then okay. later on, yeah. I think yeah. It's, I think he might have guessed it on Rogan once or twice because his name. He, he has been on Rogan. Okay, sure. That's where times. I know him from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's good friends with Joe Rogan, right. and he, um, so Matt, uh, you know, has been on, um, well, he was on, uh, uh, called Drive on NBC, okay. or M- CNBC Sports or something like that, right? and, um, but I know him, I mean, I've watched him on all that stuff, sure. but, uh, and, and he has, he does videos and all that, so anyway. Serious car bro in any case. Yeah, and I and I interviewed him, and I interviewed a bunch of other uh, people, and we and I asked them questions about their uh, about their cars, and it kind kind of made me think back to Have you ever seen the movie with um, Julia Roberts um, and um, Oh Hugh? Um, oh, what's his last name? Where uh, yeah, the, the the British Notting Hill. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. it's escaping me momentarily. Um, but yeah, I, I have his I have, have his face in my in my head right now. It'll come to me. Yeah, and I'm sure listeners are screaming at. Yeah, you know, Notting Hill is the movie you're talking about, right? Notting Hill, and he is he's interviewing. He really just went there to see her because they're you know 
spoiler warning, uh, they're dating, uh, and and he had to come up with the name of uh, a magazine that he was with. And it right, was, uh, right. Like Horse and Hound or something. Yes, exactly. Like that. Or Horse and Hare or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. You know? and, and so uh, you know, I sort of felt like that when I'm interviewing these guys because you know I'd never done that in my life. Uh, but it, but it was a lot of fun, and um, now I'm happy that um, Shin uh, Chu out in um, Singapore, you know, volunteered to put it all together. And it goes back to our podcast. Uh, we had had Shin on uh, as a guest, uh, and we've had uh, we have you know a guy in Italy uh, who has now since moved to Abu Dhabi. Okay. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think if we've had any other uh, international guests, but, you know, the three of us, you know, one guy lives in Chicago, the other guy lives in New Jersey outside of New York City, and, of course, I live outside of Washington, D.C. Right, right. You know, and then we've... So very uh, there remote, is very remotely connected. Oh, totally, uh, totally uh, remote. And, um, I mean, I know those guys, mm-hmm. but... You know, there. You know, it's just like you're sitting in Taiwan. I'm sitting outside of Washington D.C. But the wonder of IP, right? Yeah, yeah. P2P. We, we, I guess we can uh, thank um, Kenny uh, Pulver for some of that, right? Was, uh, was oh right? Actually, he was one of the he was one of the pioneers of this whole technology. Yeah, I believe he was. Yeah, Jeff Kenny yeah. Pulver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, by the way, it was you, Grant. You, Grant is his. That's his last name. Hugh Grant. How yeah. can I forget? Yeah. yeah. Well, I yeah. forgot too. So <laughs> it's just like, you know, yeah, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I Googled it while you were talking. So, so that's what I'm, uh, well, that's what I've been doing for fun. Now, as I say that around me now, I'm, I've got a boatload of die cast cars. I've been actually selling some of them on, um, eBay, okay, uh, not all of them, but just sort of some of the ones where, I, you know, drove my wife Ann crazy because I was buying them, so I'd have something to talk about on the on the show, right? Um, and, uh, and the house went, is starting to fill up. Uh huh. So if it doesn't have some special or sentimental value, it's you know it's going to be uh, heading out the door. Right. Although I got actually just got a, a new one, and it's a uh, uh, it's a Volga. Uh, which was manufactured by Gaz uh, in the Soviet Union. Um, and uh, Gaz is a acronym for the State Automotive Factory. Okay. Um, and, I, and I have a couple other Soviet-era cars. And oh, then I've cool. got, yeah, and I've got just some others that have some kind of, I guess, meaning uh, to me. Um uh, and I love them. I mean, I love cars. They're sure. great. I mean, I, I went for a long drive on Sunday afternoon in my um, BMW M3 convertible that I have, and and I have the sunburn to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> good way to get it. Good way to get it. Yep, it's a good way to get it. <laughs> well, let me let me just back up here now because I'm going to assume, assume something, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But at mm-hmm. some point. Way prior to this, you got the bug for automobiles. Yes. And so, how did that? So, when did that come about? And can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, Michigan, uh, 
is obviously the, you know, or at least Detroit was, maybe still is kind the of the city capital of the world. And uh, my uncle worked for Chevrolet and uh, okay. we would go to their house and he had, oddly enough, all these die cast uh, models that were all the different cars that Chevrolet. Oh, worked. cool. Did you get any of those? I, I didn't because unfortunately he had sons later on. <laughs> those darn uh, cousins. At the time, it, he just had two girls and they didn't care. So he had so no competition. I, I, yep. I would disappear into their basement and uh, just uh, play with the cars. And then later on, um, I started uh, buying car magazines. I used to drive my dad insane. Uh-huh. He's like, you know, why do you spend all your you know, your money on car magazines. And I'm kind of looking at him going, I don't understand how that's a bad thing. Why not? Uh, yeah. And, and I'll tell you, I mean, I read them and, uh, even I remember, uh, back then, uh, there was a magazine, uh, called automobile magazine still around, but it had just come out and it was started by this amazing journalist, uh, uh, David E. Davis, who, uh, was at car and driver, and he decided he was going to hang out a shingle and do his own magazine. Uh, and it was in Ann Arbor. And uh, I had my nephew who, you know, was a kid at the time. And I was probably 18. I wasn't going to Michigan. I never thought of going to the University of Michigan at, right. at that point. And uh, we walked into Automobile Magazine. And I'm like, hi. <laughs> I don't remember what I said. But in the end, uh, my nephew and I ended up sitting in the office with uh, – uh, David E. Davis, uh, you know, talking about cars and cool. magazines, and walked out of there with a bunch of swag from the magazine. Nice, and, you scored that day. Oh yeah, and and I'll tell you, he is remains one of the most famous and influential uh, automotive journalists in the history uh, of automotive journalism, and uh, I am pretty sure some of my automotive journalist friends would back me up. In fact, um, there is a famous, uh, uh, segment on 60 minutes where more morally safer, uh, goes to Italy to do a story on Lamborghini. And, um, he interviewed David E. Davis. And, uh, so, uh, if you ever uh, want to see who I'm talking about, you can, uh, look up the morally safer thing on YouTube. It's a fantastic story. It still has legs and holds right, right. Uh, today. Uh, so that was so a 60 minutes uh, segment? 60 minutes segment. Yep. And okay. so, you know, my uncle's cars in, in the, in the basement really got me going and then reading about them. And then, uh, actually when we moved to the other side of the state, uh, and I was going to community college, uh, because I was not a very good high school student. Um, so I kind of started over. I worked, um, at, I, I actually got a job working at, uh, General Motors, uh, in the production engineering, uh, part of the company, wow. uh, as a clerk, you know, and, uh, I was, I was in there and, uh, they were doing all this crazy work on, um, on these blue reference cards, keeping track of all of the different engineering changes. Uh, and so this like, is still pre, uh, PC days. I mean, there were no, uh, no, this is early PC days, oh, early PC days. Okay. And 
even back then, I I I got a a subscription to Lotus One Two Three magazine, <laughs> <laughs> and I taught you myself proto geek you. I know, right? Taught myself how to use Lotus One Two Three, and uh, I went in and I'm like, going, why do you guys do it like this? You know, we could just do a spreadsheet. And they they all looked at me, kind of turned their head like, funny. Like you were speaking Martian. Yeah, exactly. And so we set up uh, a spreadsheet for tracking all of the tooling changes for what would become uh, the Chevrolet Beretta and the Chevrolet Corsica. Uh, and uh, it was fascinating. I mean, we saved all kinds of time and all kinds of money. Um, and uh, I remember when the cars started going into production and they had a lot of problems because they were cranking out maybe a hundred cars a day and they should have been doing thousands and thousands and thousands of cars a day. And, right. you know, it was kind of back to the drawing board on a lot of the, uh, uh production engineering type stuff. Um, which by the way, this story has a funny tie back to Matt Farah and the smoking tire because he talked about the Chevrolet Beretta, uh, on his podcast and how, uh, his dad, uh, who had been the CEO of uh, uh, Polo Ralph Lauren and a bunch of different uh, retail giants and all this stuff, mm -hmm. had purchased a Beretta, like shotgun or something. So and, it was just like uh, a super hot car. I don't even I don't even know that that that, nah, that make nah, nah. it, it was a piece of junk. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So so Matt and his dad are in Italy and they go visit the Beretta factory and there in the, in the lobby is a Chevrolet Beretta. And they, they're kind of like, that's weird. Well, it turns out when Chevrolet named the car Beretta, they didn't get, um, approval, uh, permission to use the name or mm -hmm. didn't realize. Uh, and, uh, so Beretta, you know, sought general motors out and said, Hey, that's our name. You can't use it. And they're like, Oh, could we arrive at something? And Beretta being, the great Italians they are said, yeah, sure. Just give us a car. <laughs> and that right. was the car. Did GM get so, any guns? I don't know. If GM got guns. That's a great question. I wouldn't mind having a Beretta gun. Yeah. Well, I've certainly carried one long enough, but, um, and, and do you, do you remember the TV show? Uh, what was that with Rob? Was it with Robert hmm? Blake? Robert Blake Beretta. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He had like a, two, no, not a toucan, um, or some a sort of or cockatiel. Yeah, yeah, cockatoo. That's right. Yes, yes, we are showing our age. Oh, Mark. well, yeah. I mean, the mirror shows me my age day by day. Um, <laughs> you know, this is this is this is great. So, okay, so now I'm getting the Michigan background, then the Detroit connection. You got it on two sides. Your dad being indirectly involved with uh, the automotive business on the union side, having your uncle being directly involved in the automotive business. Now, from here on forward. Uh, you went to school. Now, is uh, you you do have a military background. How is it that you got from uh, finishing school and finding yourself in the Air Force? What what was the path there? So interesting. Uh, when I was in junior high, and I was I, I I don't know why I remember this day like it was yesterday. Um, I'll I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Okay. I remember somebody uh, two things from. Uh, my really early childhood at church. And one was that our pastor, uh, was also, um, a, um, oh, shucks. How can I forget a chaplain okay. in the army? Mm -hmm. 
and uh, he came to church one day uh, in his uniform, and I'm pretty sure he was a full bird colonel because I just remember seeing those eagles as a little kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was another. They stuck with you, it seems. Oh, totally. Yeah. And then another uh, uh, guy uh, went to Annapolis, the U.S. Naval Academy. Um, and I remember him coming to church in his whites. Um, but, uh, one of my big kind of television childhood heroes was, um, Lee Majors in the uh, $6 million man. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be like Steve Austin and, you know, (laughs) be in the air force. Okay. And I'm sitting out on a, a ski hill in Michigan, uh, a very, unknown place called Pando. Uh, look it up on the internet, P-A-N-D-O. Mm-hmm. And um, I just sat there and I thought, you know what? I want to be an Air Force officer. That's what I'm going to do when I grow up. And I didn't have a plan. And uh, I didn't do well in high school. But, uh, you know, by golly, when I got to Macomb Community College, which I think is now just called Macomb College, um you know, I got a new attitude and uh, worked my tail off, um, and I only applied to the University of Michigan, which in retrospect was a big mistake because uh, uh, it's tough to get into. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to uh, the ROTC detachment, and I'm oh, like, okay. hey, I'm in the Air Force, and, uh, and uh, they were like, okay. Uh, uh, they said, uh, well you know, what do you, you know, what do you want to study? And I said, well, I don't know. I have no idea. What should I study? And the guy goes, you should study Russian. We can always use people who can speak Russian and understand Russia. And I'm like, well, okay. So I went into the, uh, Russian and East European studies program at the university of Michigan and, uh, studied everything there was to know about, uh, Russia and the Soviet union uh, at the time. And in fact, uh, even spent, uh, uh, a short summer uh, semester uh, in the Soviet Union, wow. uh, going to school, and um, then graduated and was commissioned a second lieutenant. And you would think, well, Dan's going to become a intelligence officer with that background. And uh, no, Dan wasn't. The Air Force decided Dan's going to be uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile launch officer. Okay. <laughs> Okay, uh, so I became a, a missileer, and uh, and then eventually that turned into uh, the space career field, um, and spent uh, uh, 24 years in the Air Force, combination of active duty and uh, reserve time, um, okay. and retired a couple a, of years ago. A parallel to this, and staying on point, and getting getting to my one of my uncles now. Uh, my uncle, I believe, was involved in the ABM program uh, down in uh, 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 was it uh, Redstone? In, uh, yes, Alabama. So I go there. I'm, yes, I'm supposed to go there next week. In fact, right, Redstone. And, so, yeah, yep. yeah, and so that that I believe that was the ABM program, not the ICBM. Does does that sound right? right? Okay. It, yeah, it's the anti ballistic. Exactly. Uh, there was a you know that was the uh, famous Reagan Star Wars program. Uh, yeah, this would have, this would have he would he would have been involved even pre Reagan, but uh, so my my family uh, his family was living there at that time. I want I want to guess and say like uh, late mid to late sixties something like that. 
Uh, yeah, that, yeah, because you could. Yes, so the ABM work was going on well before President Reagan. Right. Okay. Sure. So yeah. and and so you you have some involvement with that uh, that program now. Do you? Uh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry. To, I don't want to. So you you went into the you went into the Air Force. Now you're at the point where uh, your boss, which is basically the Air Force, said, "Hey, you know, we think you should be." In- uh, my name is Lior. You are listening to a Connector podcast with Mark Foreman. Sababa. ICBM, so you're getting involved with that. Please continue. Yeah, so uh, I did that job, um, and it was uh, was uh, very interesting. It's actually um, a very stressful uh, position because, you know, when you take a step back and consider what that mission is, um, you know, it's very serious. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and we were trained, uh, very thoroughly. And in fact, every month we were trained and we had to take three different exams. And basically when you got anything, let's say under 98%, you were explaining to your squadron commander why you weren't taking your job seriously. Wow. So, we're talking about a high uh, standard, very high standards, and uh, that came out of uh, the Strategic Air Command uh, era uh, of uh, uh, Courtesy Lemay, who just demanded those kind of standards. And, and, and he um, ran for president as an independent, didn't he? He, you know, I don't know a lot about Lemay other than you know his role, uh, you know, at SAC, and then. You know what I, I remember seeing uh, how he was portrayed in the uh, the the film over the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay, if memory serves, I believe that was the first independent presidential candidate I recall, and you know, I mean, because he's got a very distinctive name, so I'm pretty sure he he ran for president as an independent. Yeah, could have been. Mm-hmm. Don't know. Okay. Yeah, he. Uh, but you know, but he certainly made an um, indelible impact um, on the United States Air Force, right. and uh, and uh, for that matter, on the wor- on the world, and you know, setting the standards that we just had to live up to. And in fact, uh, I think I don't know when it was now, a couple of, several years ago, probably uh, there was a pretty big cheating scandal in the in the missile. Uh, career field. And, and I think uh, a lot of it, I mean, this is not a good excuse, but a lot of it was, uh, because those young men and women are, were under such intense, uh, pressure, uh, that they, uh, that some of them decided they were going to cheat and, uh, and they eventually got caught and they were, um, court-martialed and um, no one went to jail, but they were, you know, uh, their career was over for sure. The service and uh, all that sort of stuff. So, uh, you know, to this very day, uh, their job is uh, taken very seriously. And um, many of my friends that I uh, served with are, are, are still on active duty. They're either uh, pretty senior colonels or uh, one and two star generals who who came out of that and uh, that that career field really creates uh, this weird combination of a 
you know, fiercely, um, you know, precise and checklist oriented culture, you know, we would, you know, we would call it, you know, read a step, do a step, eat a banana. You know, in other words, <laughs> you know, we know how to do this. Just follow the rules. Right. Uh, don't want to be and, making any waves. Yeah. Don't be making things up as you go along. Um, uh, but also they were, they were a lot of fun. I mean, you know, we had, we did have a really good time. It wasn't like, you know, it was all doom and gloom and, and right. whatever, but it right. certainly was, um, a very serious, uh, career field. And then, um, I actually went from, uh, that job to the onsite inspection agency, uh, here. Um, in fact, my office that I used to work at, it's not more than eight or nine miles from where I live right now. Uh, and, uh, at OSIA, which later became the defense threat reduction agency, uh, you know, we were responsible for, uh, treaty verification. So, uh, once again, you would think, oh, well, well, surely, you know, he went and worked on the start treaty. Um, but I didn't, um, I went and worked on the treaty on open skies, which was the best, uh, was awesome, uh, fantastic, um, uh, treaty and program. Uh, and when I got there, it actually hadn't been fully, uh, ratified. That was part of what we were doing and flying all of these, uh, test missions and training missions, uh, with our allies and, uh, somewhat, I guess, adversaries, uh, and, uh, you know, proving everything out and working through all the details. And then, um, we actually did a very important mission where members of the Russian Duma came over here and we flew a treaty mission uh, with them on mm. the Russian open skies aircraft. And then we also had the U S open skies aircraft and we visited a couple different uh, sites as a part of, of this treaty. And, uh, they went back to Russia and convinced uh, their fellow uh, members of the Duma and then the upper house, uh, their kind of version of the Senate, to ratify the, the treaty. And, um, and then they did and deposited their instruments of ratification. And uh, by that time, uh, I decided that uh, it was pretty tough being a uh, single dad. And, um, I decided I was going to get off active duty and go into the reserve, which is what I did, moved back home to Michigan and I get a call and they're like, Hey, we need you to, uh, go on duty for several weeks to help us. Um, we're going to, um, certify the U S open skies, uh, aircraft with mm -hmm. all of the treaty partners. So, um, you know, went back and, and did that and, uh, and then, you know, we started flying missions for real. Um, and, uh, but I think, I don't know if it's happened yet, but, uh, the president has decided that, um, we're going to withdraw from the treaty, which, uh, is a shame. And, uh, you know, kind of in the back channels of discussing with folks, there's some validity, uh, to why he wants to uh, 
to back out of it. And I just hope that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, apparently the Russians weren't exactly playing uh, playing fair, but I hope that it's not a one way street out of this thing right, because right. those kind of treaties are called security and or they're called uh, confidence building measures. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea is that you know there's um, we we're not hiding. Things we're operating under this concept of um, transparency of military intent, mm-hmm. and the Open Skies Treaty facilitated that. And you would think, well, geez, Dan, you know they can get all the pictures they want from their spy satellites, and that's true. But the way that the treaty worked is they could fly anywhere they wanted. They did not have to let us know in advance, and we did not have to let them know in advance. And uh, there were a few reasons that they could say, well, you can't fly there. You file a flight plan. And usually that just had to do with safety of flight. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and uh, then when you would do your, your mission uh, in return and, and process all of the, the film, it was available to everybody um, in, who, who were state signatories to the treaty. So there was, you know, this element of peer pressure, you know, that if you were doing something, someone might say, Hey, why do you have, you know, your troops, uh, building up in this area? And even if they had moved things, there were certain, uh, sensors that you could use that you could tell that maybe a day or two before there had been 50 tanks there. Right. And they moved him somewhere. So wow. uh, it, it was really um, interesting. And that that's um, uh, where I went after uh, doing the ICBM gig. And then my first job as a reservist, actually, was as uh, one of three uh, reservist ICBM officers. And I did not go on alert because, you know, it's a long explanation of why but um i it just wasn't possible but i did work on things like you know plans and programs and then i was a what's called a battle staff director so i helped run exercises um and that was at minot air force base in oh, dakota yeah up in yep. the dakotas yes and then a very uh defining day uh i think for all of us but certainly for me professionally uh was back in early, early, early 2001, the wing commander, uh, who was a female, and she said, hey, I want you to go through how we do everything, and I want you to rewrite it. I don't want it to be done in such a way so that inspectors general coming through, it's you know, set up to make them think we know how to do our job. She said, rather, I want you to make it so that it's realistic, so that if there's you know some emergency and something happens that you know, we are trained and we can react to it because that's a lot more so likely. So kind of tone down the CYA component. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We would call it eyewash. Okay. And um, so I took that and I spent several months. And then uh, in August of 2001, uh, all of the commanders were brought in and 
you know, and I was there to train them on this new setup and they kind of all rolled their eyes and everything. And I said, look, you know, I know every single one of you has done what I'm doing. I'm a, you know, I'm a senior captain and you did the same thing when you were lieutenants and captains and, you know, senior master sergeants and, you know, whatever, or, or, you know, staff sergeants and whatever. And now you're, you know, senior NCOs and senior officers. I said, but uh, the general has asked me to put this together in such a way that it's, you know, very realistic so that, you know, if we, you know, airplane goes down or something like that happens that we can really respond and it can Mm -hmm. have some impact. And they paid attention and uh, we ran some practice scenarios and it went very well. And then uh, I came back in early September and we were in the middle of an exercise and I think it was called the global guardian. And, uh, this was, uh, an exercise that kind of tested everything in, in strategic command, the, uh, um, um, the, agency that was created after strategic air command went away, became United States strategic command. And, uh, I'll never forget, uh, on the morning of September 11th, I'm watching this tiny little television and the today show was on and saw, you know, they're like an airplane hit the world trade center and, uh, kind of, um, you know, the rest unfortunately is history. And of course they, they didn't let me go home. Uh, I was there for several weeks instead of just one week. Right. And, uh, uh, that was, that was very intense for sure. No kidding. Yeah. In fact, another quick little side story that goes back to the university of Michigan, my college roommate, uh, did become an intelligence officer <laughs> and I called down to space command, uh, intelligence to discuss something or another. And we were, you know, on a, on a classified line and I'm like, uh, you know, uh, somebody on the other end answers the phone. It's like this Captain Sundermeyer. I'm like, Captain Sundermeyer. I'm like this Captain Mosqueda. And he's like, Dan, what are you doing? And we were roommates together. So, you know, that was a small world. Yeah, play, um, playing the captain card. What's up here? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, and then I, uh, left there and, um, uh, they actually, uh, I went back to my, civilian job that I had in Michigan and they, but it wasn't long after that, um, couple of years, I guess, two years later that they asked me to come back on active duty more or less for the long run. Uh, when we started fighting in Afghanistan, in Iraq and, um, and I, I can't say that I was on continuously, but I was for a good long period of time, both, um, at Space Command, uh, what is now the Space Force, and uh, going over to uh, Kuwait and Iraq. Okay, so you, uh, I, yeah, I do. Rec- you did some active duty in the Middle East in both Kuwait and Iraq, correct? Correct. And you, mm-hmm. you were actually injured during your active duty there. Is is that also? Correct? Uh, not exactly. Okay. Um, that actually happened after that. It happened in Mississippi. Um, while we were in training. Okay, so it was a training accident. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, Dan, you know, just for issues of time, I mean, th- this is this is great stuff. I, I just want to, okay, is it okay to talk about your recent and or current work? Is that something? Yeah, yeah. Right, I, can, I, 
I can tie it up in a nice bow. I enjoyed. Uh, I my love that. Years. Tie it up in a nice audio bow. Let's do that. Yeah, I enjoyed my 24 years in the Air Force. You know, I finished it out strong at uh, uh, Air Force Space Command, mm-hmm. and uh, I got hired away uh, from it uh, to become uh, what's known as a business developer at a uh, an R and D company uh, in Maryland. And uh, eventually moved from Colorado uh, to Maryland and then um, worked for that company for probably five years or six, six years. And then moved on to another R&D company um, and then was uh, kind of poached from them pretty early on, actually. And I worked for a uh, uh, large uh, federal contractor and uh, still do uh, business development and lead a team of of people and our job is to uh, go out and um, come up with new ideas, both for uh, the U.S. Um, Department of Defense, but also other agencies in the government, as well as uh, international customers. So, uh, can you talk about co- the types of services and/or products that your company is involved with? Sure, uh, I'll. Uh, I'm going to cherry pick some. I, I guess some interesting things. Okay. Uh, so, uh, for instance, um, the, you know how, uh, there are ships and they have these long cables that they put out behind them to, you know, see if there are submarines. Right. For sonar. Yeah. So we, uh, in my division where I work, one of our big things is we repair those. Okay. So somebody's got to fix them, right? And they're actually highly sensitive instruments, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's see. Another uh, interesting uh, thing would be that we train all of the operators of the THAAD uh, system, the Theater High Altitude Air Defense System. So uh, every single uh, U.S. Army soldier who is trained on that system. It goes through um, guys from my division. Uh, and then um, we, do, we, we do a lot of uh, testing and provide a lot of uh, equipment that uh, is used to help train uh, naval aviators uh, as they you know, continuously uh, prepare to be better pilots and, um, and uh, in their service uh, to, to the country. Um, and then um, an interesting thing that my division actually hasn't worked on, but everyone at the company is super proud of it, is uh, Lidos uh, under contract to DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, um, built and has sailed the first uh, fully autonomous naval vessel uh, called the Sea Hunter. And uh, I think we've built a couple of them now. And it's just amazing. I mean, these uh, ships, they're trimarans, and they, uh, you know, we've sailed them from San Diego to Pearl Harbor and back with absolutely no human intervention. Wow. And you'd be like, well, why, why would the Navy want that? Well, they want it so that if, uh, you know, maybe there's certain missions that we could do autonomously that wouldn't put um, sailors' lives at risk. And I don't mean just war stuff. It could be anything. It could be many, many things. Cause right. as you know, the militaries around the world don't just fight wars. They're usually the first people to show up 
you know, when there's right. a big emergency. So it's a big unmanned weapon platform as well as a big unmanned weapon. Yeah, kind of. but in order to get all of that work, somebody has to uh, find out what the government needs sure. uh, or the customer needs and then work through it in detail with them and then build uh, build the case for why they should buy our version of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we compete with our um, competitors, which right. sometimes are what we call competimates. Because sometimes we team together and sometimes we compete against each sure. other. Um, and then we get uh, selected uh, and uh, we do that work. And we do it not just for the United States, uh, but we're also um, literally around the world. Uh, and we have specific um, uh, divisions in the UK, Israel, Saudi Arabia, uh, and Australia. But we also are doing you know, work in Japan and Africa and I mean, you name it, uh, not in Taiwan. Um, or maybe in Taiwan, maybe, maybe uh-huh. it's, there, there could be some, I'd have to look and see right. nothing that I know of that I'm working on, but, um, so it's a lot of fun. I work with a great bunch of people and I really, um, am truly blessed with this job. Uh, the company's, um, focus really is on, creating a safer world. And, uh, and, and in that, uh, we also happen to run the national cancer Institute. We do a lot of medical, um, R and D and operate a lot of, um, significant, wow. uh, research and development, um, in different areas of, of safety. So you guys are truly a technology company, not just, uh, not just military or defense focus, but you guys actually cover a fairly broad spectrum. Right. Yeah. In fact, um, I think our defense work is probably a little less than half of the company's revenue. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's really interesting. And we work across all of the what we call the groups. We actually collaborate quite a bit um, on different things because, you know, clearly there's some really high tech stuff that we do, like this autonomous ship, for instance, that could see some of the bits of that technology you know, working on the civilian and even commercial sure. side. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 that's the, that's a cool thing about good tech and good engineering. The fact that, uh, it's got uh, crossover ability that it can be extended and adapted. Yep. So, you know, I guess the, the bottom of the, the bottom line is, uh, Mark, um, just, uh, you know, don't give your kid a hard time about buying a car magazine. And <laughs> end up. Beautiful. That that was really a good bow. I wasn't expecting that one to come back up. <laughs> this is reminding uh, reminding me of like a Dave Chappelle bit where you know went on and on and on, and then brought us back to where it all started. That was good. I mean, and I mean, and not just that, Dan. Wow. I mean, you really have had quite uh, an interesting life in so many uh, different phases, doing different things. But yet, you can see, yeah, there's a consistent thread there. And obviously, you know, you've always been you, just like we all are. We grow and develop, but that's that's really something. And uh, I'm really happy to have, have had the time uh, uh, for you to come on and share some of that. And there's there's really a lot to unpack. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to be very diligent in going through uh, the content of this show because there's going to be a lot of links. There's a lot of information. I think some people. Uh, would be interested in finding out some of the historical references and some of the technology references that are available 
to the public on the internet. So I'm gonna have to yeah, do my sure. due due diligence and my linking, and you'll have to you'll have to check up on uh, on me on that. Sure. And uh, another place, if uh, anyone's interested in, uh, I've only recorded one podcast so far as kind of a a, a, a guest, but um, I work with a, a guy in Israel who uh, has a podcast called The God Academy, Game of Thrones Academy. It kind of started with Game of Thrones. And um, uh, so the last, the episode that I was on, we discussed uh, air warfare uh, theory and um, how it was and wasn't used with the dragons. And um, hmm. so we're going to continue to do that, but we're also uh, going to discuss some uh, air and space type uh, movies in the, in the future uh, to you know talk about those topics about whether or not they were realistic. So it's it's a lot of fun Good doing stuff. that. Okay, yeah. well we'll get we'll get the we'll get the link from you on that and put it on there. So Dan, at this point, I just want to thank you for coming on a connector and connecting with me and connecting with us, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks again. Sounds great. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate the opportunity and. Uh, Look forward to talking to you more in the future. You bet. Bye now. Bye.